Today we turn in God's Word to Matthew chapter 2, picking up where we left off last week. Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. We welcome those visiting with us today, college students back in town, other family who are here as well. Hear now the Word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So far, the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to us today by his Holy Spirit. For some, Christmas is the best of times. For others, as Rico Tice, quoting from Charles Dickens, says, it is the worst of times. And maybe for you, it's a combination of both. There is so much around this season There is sentimentalism, there's excitement, there's movies on TV and songs on the radio and stuff going on all over the place. There's there's the true spirit of Christmas, you hear that phrase, which is not a biblical phrase at all. In fact, a lot of the stuff around Christmas, loved ones, movies and things, are not only a slight deviation from the Bible, but they're a complete departure from the incarnation of the Son of God came to save us from our sins. We see that even in terms of some of the biblical stories that we know well, but perhaps have missed a bit. And we want to look at that a little bit today in Matthew chapter 2. As we are reminded here that there is a history to these things, that Christianity is true history. That's why we believe this, by the power of the Holy Spirit. This really happens. And as a side note, kids, do you know that there really was a St. Nick, just as an aside? 
He didn't invent Christmas, but he was a pastor in Turkey in the 300s AD. He gave toys to orphans because he was a Christian, not to invent a holiday. As Christians, we who have been given much have much to give, right? So the fruit of his faith in Jesus was in him giving gifts. He would leave toys where the kids weren't looking so that they wouldn't know it was him, and he didn't want to be the center of things. Isn't that interesting? Just as a side note. He was also a delegate to the Council of Nicaea. He defended the truth that Jesus is truly God, truly man, against the false teacher Arius. He got into a scuffle with him. He actually went up and slapped Arius in the face at one point. It was so intense and personal. That's the real Saint Nick. That's the real pastor who loved the Lord Jesus. Well, we want to look today at the message that is given to us about how we respond to Christ. That's what we see today. After looking at the incarnation last week, after seeing that his name is Jesus, for he saves his people from their sins, after considering the virgin birth, that he is fully divine, fully and sinlessly human, how do we respond? First, the wickedness of Herod. The Christ has been born. From the end of Matthew 1 to chapter 2, several months, maybe up to two years, have passed. We are introduced to a man named Herod the Great. He was a real man. He was friends with Mark Antony, Caesar Augustus. He had reigned 35 years in Jerusalem up to this point. He was very sick. He would die a few years after the birth of Jesus in 4 B.C. You get that? The calendar's off a bit. He wasn't Jewish. He was half Arabian, half Edomite. Do you remember the genealogy stuff we talked about a few weeks ago in Matthew 1? How in the ancient world, people would kind of spruce up their genealogy or get rid of the people they didn't want in their genealogy or kind of make it so I'm really awesome. Herod was one of those guys. He was a schmoozer, but he was not a real ruler. He was, however, very successful in terms of building. He built racetracks. He built cities. He added on to the temple, which is why it's called, at that point, Herod's Temple. He was a tyrant. Devious, wicked, conniving. The more he got older and got sicker, the more diabolical he got. He was paranoid. Absolutely paranoid and jealous of anyone that would threaten his reign or potentially take away his power. He was called Herod the Vicious. It's possible he had spies all over the place. This is not the stuff of 007. This is real stuff. He had 10 wives, 12 children. He had one of his wives murdered. He had his mother-in-law murdered. He had three of his sons murdered. This is the king who is ruling when Jesus is born. And coming to meet him are three wise guys. The wise men. There is all sorts of stuff out there about them that isn't necessarily from the Bible. It never says they were kings. It never says they were from the Orient. And it never says there were three of them. We three kings of Orient are. 
It's a catchy tune, but none of those statements is actually said directly in the Bible. It doesn't say they rode on camels, and it doesn't say they arrived the night that Jesus was born at the manger scene. The Bible doesn't give their names, but people have given their names, even though the Bible doesn't. Casper, Balthazar, and Melchior. <laughs> we don't know that, but you'll read about stuff like that. They're unnamed, they're unnumbered. They're from the Far East, we do know that. Possibly Arabia, Persia, or Babylon. They may have come from Iraq. They maybe traveled close to a thousand miles in a caravan to arrive at Bethlehem. The Magi were known throughout the ancient world for skill in astronomy, looking at the stars, and astrology. That's the superstitious stuff, the horoscope stuff today. They were scientists, mathematicians, doctors, legal experts. And magi are mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. Do you, do you know that, kids? Do you know where? Nebuchadnezzar has dreams. He calls the magi, his wise guys, to interpret the dream. They can't do it. Who is able to do it? Daniel. And Daniel becomes the head of the magi in Babylon. And who knows how many people heard about the one true God from Daniel and his friends in Babylon in 500 B.C. The ways of God are mysterious indeed. As with any profession, there were good magi and there were bad magi. You read in the New Testament about one of the bad guys, Simon Magus, Simon the Magician, Simon the Magi. He sold himself to Satan, Acts 8. These guys in the days of Herod show up. And it's possible they come on horses with a cavalry. It's very possible there's many of them. We're not told, but magi, plural, means at least two. And we are told how Herod responds. He panics. He gets agitated. Like your dad does in traffic kits. He's pulling his hair out. He's just kind of chewing on his fingernails. Why won't 494 move? Or like your laundry at home, your dryer, when it's off its hinges, starts to jump around. That's the word here. But not only Herod, all of Jerusalem is panicked. They're stirred up. Herod finds out that these guys are looking for a promised Davidic king. Remember Herod, paranoid. Herod says, okay, wise guys, why don't you be my detectives? But he pretends that he wants to worship Jesus, sending them out to try to get information that he can have to do what? What's he after? He wants to kill Jesus. Later, we'll see next week, Lord willing, he'll have all the boys, two years old and younger, killed in Jerusalem. In that way, a lot like Pharaoh in the Old Testament, who did the same thing, in the days of Exodus, and a lot like Satan. Herod is, in all direct, strict senses, an agent of Satan. He is an antichrist. He is one of the seed of the serpent from Genesis 3, reminding us that the Bible, from beginning to end, tells a story of deceit and conflict in which every advance in God's purposes encounters opposition. It always happens, loved ones, today and then. 
Herod is trying to do the work of Satan. Matthew 2 is about a struggle between two kings. That's what's going on here. Herod, the wicked king. Jesus, the true Davidic king. Herod, who wants to climb, climb, climb. Jesus, who has all authority as the eternal son of God, who comes down, down, down in humility to be born in a manger, to suffer and die on a cross. Herod, who killed enemies to keep his throne. Jesus, who came to die for his enemies, you and I, and lay down his life for sinners, for his sheep. Loved ones, we live in a world that bows down to Herod's. We live in a world that loves to see the power of Herod's. And the sin of this Herod, these sins are in our own hearts. Self-absorption, pride, jealousy, being thin-skinned, sinful anger. Paul says that Jesus came so that we would no longer live for ourselves. What Jesus tells us there through Paul is that the essence of sin, the DNA of sin is selfishness. Sin puts me into the center of my universe. It makes every conversation about me. It makes me very defensive and thin-skinned and jealous. Sin reduces my concerns to my feelings, my needs, my wants. That's the seed of the sins from Herod that we see that are also in our hearts. It shows us our need for a Savior. Secondly, the apathy of Jerusalem. Herod calls the politicians and the theologians together. He asks them, where was the Christ to be born? Kids, if someone asks you that, what would you say? Does the Bible tell us where Christ was to be born? Well, Herod's scribes knew right away. Micah, right? The prophet. You see that in Matthew 2, verse 6 here, a quote right out of Micah 5 similar to the time of Isaiah, 700 B.C. So what Matthew is doing is taking that page. Do you see it, kids, between Malachi and Matthew? It's a blank page, or it says Old Testament, New Testament. He's taking that page. He's ripping it out of your Bible. You could do that right now, but I don't think it would be a good idea. Meaning, the promises are fulfilled. The Christ is here. The promised Messiah has come, and he's been born where? In Bethlehem. That's like Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. That's a place no one really knows much about or really is from. Now, you read in the Old Testament, and you see that Jacob buried Rachel there. Ruth married Boaz there. And David is from there. So, Matthew 1.1, Jesus, who is the son of David, is born in where? Bethlehem of Judea. There is another Bethlehem. Do you know that? In Galilee, Joshua 19. But Bethlehem of Judea is David's hometown. Micah 5 told us that. A chapter which talks about the wicked rulers in Israel. Where Micah talked of judgment coming from God. But also the hope of the Abrahamic covenant. God's promises to his people being renewed. And the birth of a true ruler who would shepherd his people, 
who would love his people, is prophesied in Micah 5. One thing this does is that it tells us when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, he is the Messiah. It confirms that this is the Christ. It tells us in Micah 5, he was not just born in Bethlehem, but his goings forth are from long ago, from eternity. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. This is the eternal Son of God, incarnate. And how far, loved ones, is Herod away from this right now? So Herod and the wise guys are in Jerusalem. They hear a prophecy of Micah talking of the Savior being born in Bethlehem. How far away, do you know, are Bethlehem and Jerusalem? About 10 kilometers, six miles, a little bit more. You might expect, if people heard of the Savior being born 10 kilometers away, there'd be a massive crowd, right? That tons of people would flock to Bethlehem to see the Savior. But we read none of that. Even though those shepherds, the night of Jesus' birth, probably not only went to the manger, but went and told others the glory of God, the Son of God is born. And yet the chief priests, the teachers, the ones who knew their Bible, knew the prophecies, they were unmoved. They didn't care. Yeah, Bethlehem, he's probably born over there. Reminding us, loved ones, that knowing the Bible is one thing, responding in faith and repentance, coming to Christ and worshiping him is another altogether. They had all the right answers, but they're indifferent. And apathy, loved ones, is actually the opposite of love. Apathy is hatred. Apathy is hostility. We see it today. Imagine that Jesus was 10 kilometers away right now and not going to see him. And yet that's what we see in our world today. I don't need to worship Jesus. I'm indifferent to Jesus. And what's the root of that, loved ones? It's pride. It's self-sufficiency. It's us thinking, I really don't have that big of a problem. I'm fine. Life is okay. I don't really need Christ. Loved ones, Jesus, by his Spirit, says to us today, I want that relationship. Whatever it is that idol is in our hearts that we say, Jesus, don't touch it. Don't go there. Whatever that is, Jesus loves us too much to let us worship that at the expense of worshiping him. He loves you too much to let you and I destroy ourselves with those idols of our hearts. And he says to you today, by his Holy Spirit, he wants your heart. He wants you to worship him, not just going through the motions. That's so easy to do. It's easy for a pastor to do. Much easier to bring your head than your heart to preach or to teach or anything. Jesus doesn't want us to go through the motions. He wants the love he has for you to, by his spirit, give you a love in your heart for him. Third, 
We see that in the worship of the wise men. Herod has found out where the Christ is to be born. And he asks these wise men about a star. What's going on with this star? Have you wondered that? Now, there's different scientific potential explanations. A comet, a supernova, Jupiter and Saturn coming together. But as one pastor says, we need to be warned about having a mentality for the marginal. (laughs) We need to be warned about straining at gnats and missing the big point of the gospel and love for God. The star is miraculous. It's mysterious. We can't possibly precisely identify what's going on here other than this. God provides it to herald, to announce the birth of his son. And God uses this miracle to bring these wise men to Christ. Kids, does that remind you of something, the star leading the wise men? Do you remember the Old Testament? The pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud? The Holy Spirit leading God's people in the wilderness? This also would bring us back to another Old Testament passage, Numbers 22. There was a prophet named Balaam, the son of Beor, not Bjorn, that skin changer from the Lord of the Rings, but Beor at Pethor. Now, why does that matter? Again, this is real history. This guy really lived. Pethor was the region where centuries later, Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish. Balaam is the guy children who struck his donkey. Remember that? He was mad at that donkey. He talked to that donkey. Maybe you talk to your dog. You say, sit, Frodo, Frodo, sit, Frodo. I didn't mean that. Sit, Fifi, or whoever it is. And, And the dog sits, but does the dog talk back? The dog doesn't talk back. You know what happened, kids, with Balaam's donkey? That donkey talked back. That's who Balaam is. Balaam is the pagan, unbelieving prophet hired by Balak to curse Israel. There are themes in the Bible here that God has built in. Balak, the king of Moab, feared the Israelites as they journeyed from Egypt to Palestine. Sound familiar? Herod has a fear as Jesus will soon journey to Egypt and back again. This is a theme that's repeating itself. Balaam says something very interesting in Numbers 24. That's the point of all this. There's a prophecy there. Numbers 24, 17. He says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall arise out of Israel. So Balaam a pagan, hired by a pro, uh, an unbelieving king to curse Israel, speaks a pagan prophecy related to the Jewish people, Jacob, which predicted a new king, the word scepter, and a star. Did these wise men know of Numbers 24? Did Daniel and his friends teach them this and other things from the time that they were in Babylon? We don't know for sure. We do know this. God 
and his word can be trusted. God's word is true. It is authoritative. It is without error. God is the author. And God can use anyone to bring that word, even Balaam. A star coming out of Jacob, connecting with the kingship of Jesus. Do you remember Revelation 22, verse 16? Jesus says, I am the root and descendant of David. The what? Bright morning star. God is sovereignly planning every detail here, loved ones. Matthew goes on. After listening to Herod, the wise men go on their way. So they saw the star. It led them maybe up to 1,000 miles. Some people say two years of traveling. Others say 40 days. We're not sure, but a long period of travel. They go to Herod. They're told by Herod to go find the child. The star appears again. And the star leads them where, children? Not to a stable. We saw that last week, right? But to a house. The shepherds came when Jesus was still lying in a manger. And a lot of manger scenes put wise men there too, don't they? But this is telling us months, maybe up to two years, have gone by. Jesus, most likely, had been to the temple for purification. We're not sure how old he is. But they see Christ. And the phrase that Matthew uses all throughout these first few chapters is what? The child. The child. The child. Where is Matthew getting that? The call to worship today came from Isaiah 9. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. That's what this would have reminded us of, them and also us. Isaiah saw that this child would be everything you and I lack. For our confusion, he is the wonderful counselor. For our weakness, he is mighty God. For spiritual orphans and prodigal sons and daughters, he is the everlasting father. In our distress, he comes to you today as the Prince of Peace. Sinclair Ferguson says, what a child. There has never been a child like this. What did they do when they saw the child? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's like quadruple. They rejoiced. They rejoiced with joy. They rejoiced with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why? Because of the gospel. They see a baby or a toddler or a 21-month-old boy and they believed the promises of God. They worshiped the Christ child. And loved ones, God expects his son, his divine son, his only begotten son to be worshiped today. Not to just be examined. Not to just be talked about. But to be worshiped. The Christ child is the son of God. They bow and they give him the best of their resources. Do you notice that? Three gifts. Not necessarily three wise men, although there could have been. We don't know. Three gifts. Gold, 
frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, the most precious metal. Frankincense, which is more costly than gold. It's a fragrant gum used in the tabernacle for incense on the altar. Used in a meal offering in Leviticus 2 as a scent that was symbolically rising to God. A sacrifice of praise to God. And it was used in the Song of Solomon. Kids, do you know that you would put frankincense on when you went to your wedding? Perfume is nothing new. You'd want to smell good, and the frankincense would help you smell good. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. A valuable perfume. A bottle of myrrh might be $10,000 in today's money. In Revelation 2, there's a city called Smyrna, which is today called Izmir. One of the missionaries we support as a church, Fikrid Bocek and his family, serve in this city. The ancient city of Smyrna is the Greek word for myrrh because its chief industry was the manufacture of myrrh. Myrrh was used as an aesthetic. It had a numbing effect. And do you remember, kids, it was mixed with wine and offered to Jesus on the cross. He didn't take it. Myrrh was used in John 19 in preparation of Jesus' body for burial. These are costly gifts. The wise men wouldn't have known all of those things, but God ties it together for us. They're acts of worship. And you wonder, Mary and Joseph, how many resources they had. You wonder, did they sell these gifts to help finance their escape and their trip to Egypt that we will see, Lord willing, next week? Matthew doesn't tell us how long they stayed here. Did they learn from Mary and Joseph more of the Bible? Don't you have those questions, right? Did they tell them more about the star? We do know they stayed at least one night because that one night they were warned by God in a dream. Don't go back to Herod. He'll destroy you. Go another way back to your own country. And amazing grace again, God protects these Gentiles from the schemes of the cruel, murderous Herod. The Magi are the first fruits of the Gentile nations. They're showing us that God has always had the nations on his heart. That Jesus is the Savior of the world. All peoples, tribes, nations, and languages. That that was promised in the Old Testament to Abraham. The nations will be blessed through Abraham and through the offspring, the child that would be born. Jesus, the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. We're reminded of Isaiah 19. In that day, Israel will be third with Egypt and Assyria. And we're reminded of the end of Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go, make disciples of all nations. We see a picture of that, the first fruits of that in Matthew 28. And loved ones, here we are today by God's grace as the gospel continues to go to all nations. The question is, where are you at today? Fourth, 
there are three responses to the good news of the birth of Jesus. Hostility and hatred, as seen in Herod. Indifference and apathy. That kind of passes itself off as sophistication, but is actually hatred as well. We saw that in the people of the teachers of Jerusalem. Third, there's a hunger to hear more. There's a desire by faith in Jesus, by his grace, to trust him, to love him, to worship him. This time of year, loved ones, with Christmas and all the different stuff that comes at us, this can kind of get mixed up a little bit, right? This time of year is a time that is, in some ways, the best of times and the worst of times. For some, it's a time of increasing isolation, loneliness. I talked to a man yesterday, and we had, I talked to him about, does he have a place to go for Christmas Eve? And due to this man's very challenging situation, he told me it's even harder for him to go to someone's house than to be alone. This man is waiting to be maybe invited by his family. There's all sorts of things going on here, but he wants to just kind of play games alone and hope that, that it goes away. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe the isolation and the loneliness makes us a hard time. Maybe you're getting together with family. Maybe some of them are hostile to Christianity. If so, I hope you're praying for them and for you as you meet with them. Maybe you're getting together with Christian family, and you know what? You just kind of don't like them that much. Maybe they kind of bug you, or you bug them, or you get rude together. And One person once said, I went home to my Christian family as a Christian, determined that by the grace of God, I would be different, and this would be different. But before I knew it, my mother asked me to do something. I snapped back. My sister and I started fighting. It was like we were teenagers again. We were back in these squabbles and this cycle of annoyance. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe you get together with family and you go and you say, I'm just going to turn the TV on for a second. Just, what's going to be on TV? And maybe you look on TV, as I'm really struggling with my microphone here, sorry. And you turn on Home Alone 2. And you see Kevin Macaulay Culkin there, and you, you come across this very strange scene. A woman says to him, did you know that a good deed can erase a bad deed? He said, well, I don't know if I've done enough good deeds to erase my bad deeds. She says, the good news is that it's Christmas Eve, and good deeds count extra tonight. And then here's what she says. Just follow the star in your heart. That is moralism. That is Gnosticism. That is this God in you kind of heartburn. That's not Christianity. By nature, we want to justify ourselves. By nature, we don't believe the gospel. But the message of Christmas is about redemptive history. It's about what God has done in the incarnation of the Son of God. It's about a real star that God provides to announce the birth of his Son. It's about an actual place in Bethlehem, an objective Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And dear Christian, the experience of the Magi finding Christ was unique, yes. But your experience in coming to faith in Jesus is no less supernatural than theirs. The same Lord sovereignly designed the events in your life, Sinclair Ferguson says, that led you to faith in Jesus. It was God who caused you to be born in a Christian family or brought you into contact with a Christian or stirred in you by his spirit a desire to read the Bible and brought you to trust in Jesus by the Spirit. The Lord had his hand on you, just as he did on them. And at Christmas, it can be the best of times, as you think of the great grace of God to you, as you thank God for Christians around you, and maybe someone who helped you to learn more about Jesus, who has been a blessing in your discipleship as you've been made more like Jesus. This time of year reminds us that the Christ we worship didn't stay a baby boy. That 21-month-old or so that the wise men saw grew. He became a man. He fulfilled all righteousness. He came to deal with a problem called a curse, the curse of sin. We live in a fallen world, and on that cross, Jesus took the curse of sin on himself, dying in our place. Our sin transferred to him. By faith, his righteousness transferred to you. He's raised from the dead. He's ascended. He's on the throne. He's not in the manger still. And he is returning again. He has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And dear Christian, our prayer is that we would rejoice as the wise men did, not by looking within to try to gin it up, but by remembering God's love for us in Jesus. The gospel of Christ is the motive for our joy. The Spirit empowers joyful worship. The joy of the Lord is our strength, meaning in Christ you are accepted you are loved, and you are wanted by God. In Christ, you are delighted in by God. God delights in you. The pain is real. Your sins are many, but God's grace is greater than all of our sin. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this mystery is profound, how you could love sinners without there being anything in us worthy of your love. Mysterious, eternal love of God. Father, we bow and we praise you for such great grace. And we pray that even though we might be overwhelmed with sorrow, that you keep our tears in your bottle and that you remember our sorrows and that you crown us with love and compassion by faith in Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. And so we do sing joy to the world, for Christ has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.